Let's go to 1 Thessalonians, if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm excited to be able to take a few moments with you this morning, and I hope to be an encouragement. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, as many, I, I love Thessalonians, of course, I love chapter 4, which encourages us with the soon return of Jesus Christ. And as we uh, look at the various events that, um, that we uh, see around us, it encourages us to know that he's coming soon. Chapter 1 is one of my favorite missions passages in the Bible. Because we see the effectiveness of missions, but it, as I read it, it's not only about them that we're trying to reach, it's about myself. Because if I am surrendered to the Lord, as I ought to be surrendered to the Lord, then God is going to use my life so that others also will come to him. And we see here in the First Thessalonians how not only does God want to be first and to, to, to save people, but he also wants to have preeminence in our lives so that our lives will in turn be effective. Now I understand that maybe I'm proverbially, proverbially preaching to the choir this morning because you guys are here. You show an interest in the things of God and you are desiring to be used of him or I don't believe that you would be here this morning, right? So therefore, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm also preaching to myself, to be honest. Preaching to myself that the Lord will remind me through this passage uh, to put him first in all things. So let's, uh, the title of the message is going to be From Idols to the Living and True God. From Idols to the Living and True God. Let's read this whole chapter together, starting in verse number 1, all the way down to verse number 10. And it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us, and of the Lord, having received the joy, uh, the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with a worshipful heart, and we have sung about the, desti the destiny that awaits us because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we know that, when we, that we will be living with you uh, eternally. In the meantime, we do have a story to tell to the nations, and to be honest, here in Surrey, British Columbia, the nations have come here, and we can tell them all around us. And we can tell them in all of Canada, but we can also travel abroad and share the good news of Jesus Christ 
I thank you for the privilege it is for me to be here this morning. Thank you for Pacific West Baptist College. Thank you for Pastor White and his vision uh, to train the next generation of servants and leaders. And I, I pray your blessing upon this school. I pray that you would continue to supply not only their needs materially, supply uh, the, the students. I pray that you would continue to uh, use this college to train and then to, uh, to equip uh, faithful servants, as I know that you have already been doing and are doing and will continue to do. And I pray that you would strengthen them, strengthen, uh, of course, any, and anyone who has a role administratively or in teaching, for strengthen the students as well as they seek to uh, acquire uh, the tools, the knowledge, the wisdom, and be influenced by, uh, in a godly way by Pastor White and others. I pray that you would equip them and continue to mold them into what you would have them to be. Now in the moments that we will spend looking at this passage of Scripture, our eyes are fixed upon you because no matter who comes to speak, ultimately uh, the, the speaker can come and he can leave, but your truth abides. And we are, and if the Holy Spirit takes this passage and applies it to our lives and we leave this room knowing exactly what you would have us to do personally in obedience to this passage, well, that truth will stay with us no matter who spoke, and we will be able to walk in a way that is more worthy of you and be a better disciple and better servant. And this is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The fulfilled Christian life is a life that is entirely surrendered to Jesus Christ. I can't speak for Grace Baptist Church, but I can speak for the church that I am privileged to pastor. There are some people in that church who, I would say, feel unfulfilled. You can see it in their eyes sometimes. You can see it in their life choices a lot. For example, a family, you know, my, my wife came to me and said, uh, Honey, I would like to ask this particular family to sing on Easter Sunday. Do you think that would be good? She says, I just haven't seen them in church the last two weeks. And I called them and I said, I haven't seen you in church on Sunday mornings. And they said, Oh, yeah, it's because our kids have swimming lessons on Sunday morning. And then in a different conversation, she shared, you know, Pastor, I just, I don't know, pray for me. I, I feel empty. Well, I don't want to oversimplify, but part of the emptiness is because they're not in church on Sunday morning. They're at swimming lessons. You know, the point is, it's not about the swimming lessons. It's about the fact that as much as I love them, I can't stand before you today and say that this family is putting Jesus Christ first. And if you don't put Jesus Christ first... Well, you will never really be fulfilled. In the same way as even if you're in Bible college. I mean, I was in Bible college, and just to give you a little bit of testimony, when I came as a freshman, I came because I believe somewhere deep down I had a desire to do something for the Lord, but I cannot say to you with a straight face that in my freshman year I was surrendered to Christ on a personal level. There was like a dichotomy. On one side, I wanted to do something for Jesus, but I would really love to do it while still being carnal, if that makes any sense. And I remember my sophomore year, coming back to college and thinking, I don't want to continue to live this way. Because even being in Bible college and getting opportunities to serve and all that was not satisfying my soul. And I took, I made a conscious decision before the Lord. I'm not saying you need to do this. I'm just giving you my testimony of how this went about. I remember coming from my, my sophomore year and saying, Lord, I'm going to focus on you this year. 
I'm not going to even get to date girls in my second year. I am not going to do that. I am simply going to focus on you. I am not going to get caught up in any of the human elements, pleasant elements, fun fellowship. I mean, I fellowship with my classmates, but I was really, Lord, I don't want to just be in the ministry. I want to be in a tight-knit relationship with you. Because only Jesus Christ satisfies. I, even before I get back to what I had planned to say this morning, honestly, being a pastor doesn't satisfy. Unless you're doing it as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. The simple fact of getting up on Sunday morning and having dozens of people there to, to hear the message, I mean, yes, your first Sunday is exciting, but quickly the battles come, the storms come, and that does not satisfy. Nothing, absolutely nothing, satisfies other than Jesus Christ. He satisfies. And I, 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 I'm thankful that God has placed me in his mercy and grace in the ministry. But, you know, I, I've, sometimes I pray this, Lord, if you want to take me out of the ministry, you could, so long as I'm still satisfied in you. I mean, I don't plan on leaving the ministry. I want to retire. I, I want to die in the ministry. I really do. However, I don't want ministry to be my idol. I want Jesus Christ to be the one that I worship, and I want to do ministry as an act of worship to him. It is possible, it is possible to be a pastor and backslide. Pastor White probably has seen that in you know, his lifetime, not, maybe not in his personal life, but he's seen friends or other associates, is what I mean, backslide. And I, I've had many times, I've had coffee with men who, you know, they were unhappy, and, you know, I would talk to them, I've passed a friend, and they would say, you know, I'm just not getting anything out of my devotions. That's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. When you, get, when you seek satisfaction in something other than Christ. But the fulfilled Christian life is that life that has repented from all idolatry and is dedicated completely to the worship and service of Jesus Christ. Now, the nutshell of what I want to share with you this morning is this. I believe that one of the main reasons why God's people today are not getting the job done, so to speak, of world evangelism is because of idolatry. Now, before you say, I'm not, I don't mean the idolatry of the heathen. I don't mean, like for example, if you came to Montreal, I could take you to three huge Roman Catholic cathedrals that are worldwide pilgrimage sites for Roman Catholics. I could take you to the St. Joseph's Oratory up on Mount Royal. People walk, go up on their knees to, you know, and there's a, an actual heart from a, the, the priest's chest who built it. They keep that in a jar. People pray to it. It's paganism is what it is. Uh, it's, it's terrible. Uh, you could go to downtown, downtown, and you could go to Mary, Queen of the World Cathedral. And that is a, a replica of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. They built a replica of it in Montreal. Uh, I could take you to another, I mean, they're, they're large. And, we, and when I see those places, I see them as places of idolatry. But you know, the bigger issue in Montreal is not those cathedrals. It's when believers have idols in their own heart who prevent them from going forth and being Christ's witnesses. If we, if we were to go to India, I'm sure that we could go to very large temples where people are bowing down to statues and different things. And as we said last Wednesday night, that's unfortunate, but that is not the primary obstacle to world evangelism. The primary obstacle to world evangelism is in my heart, oftentimes. 
We would all agree, I think, that the unsaved are under the yoke of idolatry. They may bow down to a statue of a so-called saint. They may uh, bow down to the microphone of a rock star. But idolatry is rampant. Some bow down to their own intellect, but it's all idolatry because it takes the place of Jesus Christ. If we're, going to be, if we're going to worship Christ like we ought to and be obedient to his mission, we must seek out the idols that would clutter our own life, and we need to remove them. We're going to get back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in a moment, but I would ask you to keep your finger here and go to Judges chapter 6 with me. I just want to use the story as an illustration of what we're going to see here in, Judges, uh, in 1 Thessalonians. But in Judges chapter 6, we find, a, we find Gideon. Now, I can identify with Gideon because Gideon, to, use a, to put it bluntly, was a wimp. I mean, if you knew me really well, you would see that I'm not, the, if, you go, if you want to go, if you want to see something funny, invite me to play paintball, okay? I'm not the guy who likes to get hit, you know? I go there and I'm like, I like to hide, oops, I'm going to duck again. I, I'm not a guy who charges out there and likes to, I was preaching a youth conference in Quebec City one time, and they, they had a variation of paintball. They used rubber balls that just bounce off of you, but they hurt. And I was coming down the staircase, and this nine-year-old girl, no, maybe she was 12. I'll make, feel me, make me feel better. Let's say a 12-year-old girl. She was under the staircase, and she put the gun, the paintball gun, right up against my leg and pulled the trigger. I yelped. Like, I, it, was, it hurt. I don't enjoy pain. I was, my game was done. I, I mean, I'm not brave. Gideon is not brave. God comes to him and says, The Lord is with thee, thy mighty man of valor. And he's like, Who? Me? And he, he, look at verses 25 to, 26, uh, to 27 that after the Lord has said all this to him, the Lord is going to continue to speak to him and say, look, Gideon, even though I want you to be a mighty man of valor, there's a problem. And Gideon, until you deal with that problem, you cannot become that mighty man of valor. Look at Judges 6.25. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. Gideon, thou mighty man of valor, I want to use you. I want to kick the Midianites out. But, I've got a problem. And Gideon, that problem is in your backyard. It's a statue of Baal that's there. Before you ever become that mighty man of valor, I want you to pull down that statue. And I want you to build an altar to God in its place. Now, Gideon is fearful, but I give him credit. At least he obeys. He obeyed, and yes, under cover of darkness, he pulled Baal down, and he built an altar. The next day, the people are furious, but now, because he has rid the idol and he has built an altar, Gideon is ready 
to be used of God. And as they say, the rest is history. You know what happens with Gideon after that, the 300 men and the great victory that God gave them. But the same situation occurs today. I, want to, I guarantee you God wants to use you. He does. There's no one sitting here that it is not God's will for you to be used. He created you and he saved you to use you. How he's going to use you to do what? I could not guess. But he wants to use you. He wants to use me. He has used and wants to continue to use Pastor White as a great model for you to follow. He wants to use all of us. However, for me and for any of us, if we have idols in our heart, we're not going to be able to be used of God as God would like to use us. In certain religions, and you can start going back to 1 Thessalonians, we'll, we'll, we'll look at verse number 5 in just a moment. In some religions, such as Shinto in Japan, they have a, a shelf that they put on the living room wall, or any wall, and they put a bunch of different little gods or statues and idols on there. When, when I was on staff at a church in Ontario, there was a, a couple from India that walked into our church on a Sunday morning. They were Hindu, and they didn't want necessarily to come to church, but they were looking for a house of worship because they couldn't find a Hindu temple to go to, and they lived right by the church, so they said, well, let's go to this house of worship. It's not a Hindu temple, it's a Baptist church, but whatever, let's go to church, let's show up at church. And uh, I got to meet them, no, their names were Joe and Angeli, and today now they live in Ottawa, actually. But um, Joe and Angeli walked into church that day, and after the message, they came forward at the invitation, and pastor said, Eric, I would like you to take them in the office, and I want you to show them how to be saved. And that morning, uh, Joe and Angeli uh, trusted Christ as their Savior. However, I was, you know, because Hindus believe that every way leads to the same place, so I was not sure if they had understood that it's Jesus and nothing else. He is the one way. I mean, I had tried to make it clear in conversation, but always when I led a Hindu to Christ, I'd always want to revisit that and make sure that that had been clear. But anyway, it was clear. They began to, to meet, I met with them every week for uh, what we would call discipleship, Bible studies with them. And as I was doing that with Joe and Angeli, they said to me, uh, Pastor, would you please pray for Joe's brother who lives in India? I said, absolutely. They said, could you help us to find a good church or a missionary near his city where he could go? So, prayed for, her, for the brother in India, and using any connections or contacts that we had, tried to track down a missionary, could not. Could not find a missionary or a church anywhere near this man's village. So, Joe said to me, well, I guess I'm going to have to give him the gospel over the phone. I said, well... Whether or not there was a missionary there, you should do that anyway. So he starts to witness to his brother. And I remember very well, it was 11 at night or so. I'm at home, and my phone rings. And Joe was talking on the phone a mile a minute. I could not even make out what he was saying. I said, Joe, Joe, slow down. What are you saying? Finally, he slowed right down. I just led my brother to Christ over the phone. I'm like, I rejoiced with him. I was so happy. And he's telling me the story, telling me the story. And then he gets all serious again. And he says, please pray for my brother. Okay, well, we were just been rejoicing that he just got saved. So I said, you want us to pray that he'll be baptized, find a church? Good request. He says, no, no, it's not that. I want you to pray 
because in our country there's that God shelf. And I'm afraid that he's just going to add Jesus to the shelf. So I kept praying for his brother. I mean, I didn't have immediate knowledge of the situation other than what I was being told, so pray. A few weeks later, Joe calls again, again, very late at night. And again, he's talking. I'm like, slow down. I can't make out what you're saying. Finally, he says to me, my brother called me. I didn't call him. He called me. I said, oh, what did your brother want? He had called to tell me that he had removed the shelf off of the wall because there's only one God and his name is Jesus. And that was exciting. In Montreal, we had a, a, another Hindu man, actually. We had just planted the church in Montreal. I mean, we're just weeks old. And this man comes in. His name was Beepin, B-I-P-I-N. And Beepin was a drug drunkard, severe drunkard. He was a Hindu. And he came in. He stayed for half the sermon and left. Six months later, he shows up again. And he says, I want to be saved. I said, okay, all right, that, that's fantastic. Uh, and I, sir, I, I remember seeing you once. You ne- we never saw you again, and now you're back. And I just asked what happened. Did we say something that offended you? Or he just said, no. He said, I heard what I needed to hear. On that day, you were talking that Jesus said, all power has been given unto me. That's what you said, Pastor. I said, yeah. He said, I have a serious alcohol addiction. And I've been waiting for the Hindu gods to help me get rid of that alcohol addiction, and they can't. So I believe that your Jesus can. And Vipin got saved. He got sober to the point where he got his driver's license back. I got to write a letter saying the change that's seen in his life. The judge read the letter in court, gave him back his license. And Beepin, from that day forward, was the most zealous soul winner we had for two or three years until he died of a, suddenly of a cancer he didn't even know he had. But all that to say, there is one God. And Jesus will not share your life with any other false God. He will, just will not. As Christians, we can't have our own God shelf. When I hung up the, when I hung up the phone with Joe that night after his brother had called, have you ever had a moment... I mean, the, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. Okay, I don't believe in him just, you know, giving us revelations. But he does convict, however. And he convicted me that night. Eric, if people in India don't have the right to have those God shelves, you, Eric Levier, don't have the right to have one either. It's not going to be Jesus and sports. I'm not saying sports are evil and sinful, but if they, are, if they elevate themselves to idolatry status in your life, that is a problem. And that was my case. I've never bowed down to a statue in my life, but I have neglected my walk with God because it was the playoffs. I'll just be honest with you. And that if, if I want God to use, not, not recently, but way back, I remember, you know, once the play, hockey playoffs started, I mean, my walk with God was, why? Because of idolatry. For others, it's travel, having a cottage, buying clothes, whatever, the, a job, a, a relationship with a boy or a girl. I mean, it can be all kinds of things. But we must understand that there's no place for idolatry in our lives. Look at verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, and please notice the end of the verse, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. I'll have three quick points. The first one is this. The missionary must choose Christ over idols in his life. If we're going to reach the world for Christ, 
we must be those manner of men through whom the gospel is going to go forth in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. If you take the classes at Pacific West Baptist College, you may very well get to a point where you have the academic and mechanical ability to prepare a sermon without the Spirit's power. I've done it, let me be honest with you. There's been times where I was, my heart was not right with the Lord and I wrote a sermon. It's even possible to deliver a sermon without the Spirit's power. Now, I don't think much good is going to come of it, but it is possible to be idolatrous in your heart and still outwardly try to perform some works. But the missionary must choose Christ. I'm not even preaching to you right now as I'm preaching to me, to myself. I must choose Christ over any idols in our lives. Any idol that holds us, anything that holds us back from being what we ought to be for Christ is either an idol or betrays the presence of an idol. My first year of Bible college, relationships were an idol. I would neglect many things because I just wanted either the social life or to get to spend some time with a special someone at the time, whatever the case might have been. And that's why my second year I said, I'm not going to do that. Jesus is going to have my heart. Because it is possible to do good things, yet with the wrong heart. A famous theologian who's, who's wrong 99% of the time, but even a broken clock is right twice a day, said this, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used, or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Idolatry is when you worship something that God gave you, for his use, and you start to worship what he gave you. Or it's trying to use God rather than worship him. That, in a nutshell, is idolatry. Remember in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through, I believe it's 62, you have these men who come to Jesus, and the first one, the first man, says something to Jesus that if he had meant it from his heart, would be the theme for just about every missions conference out there. He said these beautiful, unfortunately not sincere words. He said, Lord, I will go with thee wherever thou goest. And Jesus looks at him and says, Foxes have holes, and, the bir the, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Never hear from the guy again. Jesus is saying, okay, you want to follow me? There's a price for that. No, nah, I'm not willing to give that up to, to follow you. The second one comes and he, he says to Jesus something similar. And you know, Jesus says to him, follow me. Well, let, let me first go and, and bury my father. I mean, clearly the father's not dead or he would be at the funeral. What he's saying is, Someday, Lord, when my father has died and we have buried him, I will follow you. It's the same thing as one of us saying, well, Lord, when I've get gotten married, then I'll serve you. Oh, Lord, when we have children, then we'll be, or when the kids are grown, then we'll do something. No, Jesus is not looking to recruit people for the future. He's looking to recruit servants for now, for today, people who are going to put him first today. Another said to him, I will follow thee, and he said, let me first go bid farewell to them which are in my house. And Jesus said, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. All these men had something in common. Yes, Jesus, but I would also like to have something else on my shelf. I'm not going to be all yours. I'll, yeah, I'd like to do something, but with reservation. Well, no, that doesn't work that way. 
The biggest obstacle to the work of God is not the sinner. It's usually the saints. It's not the sinner, it's the saints. And the saint, that's me. And that's you. There is no field that is too difficult, but there are believers who oftentimes are too disobedient. Look at the verse again. For our gospel came not to you in word only. I mean, I can do word only. I can do that. I can do that. I I mean, I could go up to church on Sunday, my heart filled with sin, and I could do word only. I could go out soul winning with an unsurrendered heart just because I have to. Word only. I could hand out John Romans and tracts. Now, I'm all for soul winning, and I'm all for John Romans and tracts, and I'm all for preaching in church. But I am for it, especially when it's in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And how do we get to that point? Look at the end of the verse again. As ye know, what manner of men we were among you. I'm going to ask you this question. What manner of man are you? Or what manner of woman are you? Are you or are you not someone through whom the power can flow? Because the reason why I'm looking at your Jerusalem on the map there, and if you want to reach that Jerusalem, the Jerusalem can be reached. It's reachable. Because all power has been given unto him. Looking at Canada or looking at the world, it can be done because all power is given unto him. The question is, is that power flowing through us? And that power will flow through us if we make the decision that we as the missionary, because a missionary is not somebody who has a video and a prayer card. A missionary is somebody who's saved. God never saved anyone whom he did not send. Anybody who's saved is sent to someone and sent somewhere. Not always across the sea. It can be in your Jerusalem. But everyone who is saved is sent as a witness. But we must be those people through whom the, the Spirit will be at work. But notice, secondly, in verse number 8, not only the missionary, which is, by the way, not just me, that's also you, um, must choose Christ over idols in his life, but those who would support missions, the supporters must choose Christ over idols in their lives. Look at verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Clearly, missions is the heartbeat of Grace Baptist Church. I mean, you can be, you're in this building five minutes, and you know that the salvation of souls is a big deal around here. You're in this, not even five minutes. You're here 30, you just walk into the auditorium and lift your eyes, and you can see that souls are important to Pastor White and to this church and to this college, and that missions is important. And I know that this church does much for missions and has been extremely kind to our family and to many, many others. But if I, Eric Levier, and the church that I am privileged to be involved with, to pastor, if we're going to be the supporters, and it applies to all of us, if we're going to be the supporters that Christ wants, we must choose Christ over idols in our lives. It says here that from them, that's from the people of Thessalonica, the word of God had sounded out in Macedonia. That's their province. That's their British Columbia. And Achaia, that's the province next door. That would be their Alberta. It didn't stop there. But also, in every place, your faith to God's word is spread abroad. 
They had an impact everywhere. Now, I don't want to read too much into the verse or make it say something it isn't saying, but as I read that, it would appear to me that when Paul traveled, he would come to places and say, how did you hear about Christ? How did you hear the gospel? Oh, well, these people from Macedonia sent the gospel here. Really? I mean, he goes places, and in every place, your faith to God, your faith to God were to spread abroad. He said, so that we need not to speak anything. Probably what he means is we don't have to tell them about you because people already know what you're all about because you're so faithful getting the gospel out. But I, I also wonder if sometimes if that doesn't mean some places Paul went and didn't need to plant a church because the Macedonians sent somebody there first. But they were great supporters of missions. And I'm not, I don't have the time this morning to do an exposition of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, but we do know one thing. These Macedonians were poor. They were in deep poverty, according to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. But, according to verse 5, they had given themselves first to the Lord. And because they had given themselves first to the Lord, they basically begged Paul to get to be a part of this work, and God blessed them, and they were able to do something which was technically beyond their means. What strikes me about these Thessalonians, these Macedonians, is that they're first and foremost interested in the things of God. It's plain to me that, very plain, that Jesus Christ was their top priority. He was the one whom they cared the most about. And if I'm going to be used of God to support missions, be it by going on a missions trip, uh, faith promise giving, whatever it is, uh, if we're going to support missions, we must rid our lives and our homes of idols. I have noticed at our church that missions giving doesn't always go up just at missions conference. Anytime that we have what you might call a revival at the church, missions giving goes up. But to me, there's, that, that, is not just, that is not just a coincidence. Because when, or I have also noticed that when people start to make the right decisions about how to train their children for the Lord, you often they start to get involved in missions more. Because it's not a, a budgeting issue, it's a heart issue. And when you love the Lord, you get involved not only in yourself being a verbal witness, but also in being involved to help others go and give the, and give the gospel. And the question is, are we really surrendered to God. And if we are, and if there's no idols in our heart, we will be passionate about the idea of getting, of getting um, the gospel out to the world. I've adapted the following three observations about idolatry from a man named Goodsword. I don't know who he is, but I liked what he said. First of all, everyone is serving a god or gods, little g-gods, in their life. Everyone in this room is serving someone. We all are. All of us are serving something or someone. Everybody in our church is serving God or a little g false God. Everybody's serving something. Some people serve their career. Some people serve a, a relationship they're trying to pursue or whatever. But everybody is serving something. And also you'll notice that people tend to be transformed to look like their God. You know, everybody in the world gets sanctified, they just don't get sanctified to God. 
sanctification means becoming more and more like Christ, right? But maybe not the most theological definition, but it, I'll keep it for now. But everybody is, starts to look like what they worship. I mean, take someone who worships fashion. You can tell. Somebody who worships fitness. You can tell. Somebody who worships rock music. You can tell. Somebody who worships a basketball. And again, I'm not saying basketball is sinful, but some people worship it. You can tell. People, you know, I mean, everybody begins to look like what they worship. And also, everybody will build their life to honor their God. They'll put their God in the middle, and they'll build their budget, their usage of time, their selection of relationships. They will build their life around what it is that they worship. Everyone does that. And I don't care where you live or who you are, and this is true both of believers and of unbelievers. Everybody serves something. Everybody begins to be transformed into the image of what they worship. And everybody also begins to build their entire life around what it is that they worship. And if I want to be the mission supporter that I need to be, that God wants me to be, I have to make sure that Christ is at the center of my life. And if he is, not only will I be the missionary, and I don't mean missionary in the go-on-deputation sense, I, I mean it in the sense of being his witness wherever I am. If, I, if I, he's in the center of my life, if Baal has been pulled down and the altar of God is where it needs to be, well, I will be that witness and I will be that supporter of missions. And here's my last and third point. We want the unsaved to choose Christ over idols in their lives. The missionary, those who support missions. But thirdly, notice verse number 9. The unsaved must also choose Christ over idols in their lives. And I believe that verse 9 is the result of verses 5 and 8. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In evangelism, whether that's locally or overseas, we want to see unsaved people who don't know Christ turn from their false gods in order to accept Jesus Christ. We've had, uh, we had a lot of people from Haiti that come through our church in Montreal. I think there's a lot of them in most churches that, where there's a French-speaking population, such as in Ottawa or Montreal, Quebec City. We all have a lot of people from Haiti in our churches. But in Haiti, there are some people who claim to be Christians, but also continue to practice voodoo and witchcraft. And we've had several incidents, incidents in our church where we had witch doctors or people come into the service and, you know, different things. And I remember one lady, she says, I go back to Haiti on a mission trip and I held plant churches. I said, That's, you say that, but at the same time, I hear that you had someone at your house do this particular voodoo ceremony. How do you correlate being worshiping devils and allegedly helping to plant churches? It doesn't go together. Now, you and I hear that and we'll say, no, obviously it doesn't go together. But if you take a bit of a less extreme example, we realize, look, it's not just voodoo and witchcraft that the devil can use. He can use many other things to distract me from Jesus Christ. But this lady, I don't believe she's saved because she has not turned from her idols to serve the living. And if, she, if, if truly she had believed in Jesus Christ, she would not be worshiping these idols, is my, my belief. But you know, the, very, the entire world is a very idolatrous place. Um, again, near my house in Montreal, there is a... Uh, a Sikh temple. 
I see sometimes when I drive by, the doors open, and you can see this, what's going on in there. There's a Hindu temple not far, and again, in the summer, when they have the door open, you drive by on the street, you can see this huge golden statue in there. And clearly, it's an idolatrous place. I've already told you a little bit about Montreal and the idolatry that's there. But, at, but in all these cases, what we want to see is we want to see, turn from their idols to serve the living and true God. But here's the question. It comes back to the main premise. While we are praying for the heathen to turn from their idols, how concerned are we about idols that might plague our own life? Again, the biggest obstacle to the work of God is not the sinners out there. It's the saints. The, 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 the idols that have the most devastating impact on world evangelism are not those that you find on the mission field when you get there. It's those that you might carry in your heart with you going there. Those are the greatest obstacle, in my opinion. There's an old man, elderly gentleman, who lived many years ago. You know his name. You're about to figure out who he is as I talk. He had been persecuted for his faith. Tradition, which we can't always depend upon, but tradition tells us that he had been boiled alive, but somehow had survived. One day, he was sitting at an old desk, probably, or sitting somewhere anyway, and he had a quill an inkstand. He's writing a letter to people that he cared very much about. That letter is still available to us today. It's one of the epistles of the New Testament, inspired of God. This old man had seen some amazing things in his life. One day he, his brother, and a friend had been invited by Jesus of Nazareth to accompany him to the top of a mountain. On that mountain they had seen the most breathtaking and amazing sight. They had seen Jesus' face shine as the sun. They had seen his clothing become white as light. And a couple of years later, he was looking up at Jesus again, but this time Jesus was wearing a crown of thorns and bleeding profusely. He was hardly recognizable as a man, and even though none of his bones were broken. He had nails driven through his hands and his feet, fixing him to a wooden cross. Jesus looked down from the cross and saw this man standing there. And he saw Mary, his mother, and he said, Woman, behold thy son. And he said, Behold thy mother. And from that day forward, this man took Mary into his home as if she was his own mother. And every day of his life, I'm sure that this man could just close his eyes and think back to that day on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw Jesus Raymond shining white as light and his face shining as the sun. I mean, if you saw that, you would be thinking back to that moment often. And I'm sure he could close his eyes and just see his bleeding Savior dying for his sin on that cross. I'm sure he could see, picture him dying for, he, said, he probably thought about that, I, he was dying for my sin on that cross. And one day I'm sure that this man would walk around the Roman world and look at statues of Zeus or Diana, or Neptune, and compare that to what he had seen on that mountain and what he had seen at Calvary. And I'm sure that in his mind he would be grieved in his heart to see that people re would replace the Son of God broken for us with a silly piece of marble that can neither hear, see, or speak. And as he ends this letter, he writes, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
period. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. It's the Apostle John I'm talking about, obviously. So I wonder, what do you think John thought when he compared the idols that he would see in his daily walks, going around Ephesus or wherever, to what he had seen the Son of God glorified and the Son of God crucified? Simply no comparison with Jesus and an idol. There's just no comparison. And yet here we are with choices to make. We have a choice between Jesus Christ and a vast array of idols to choose from. Our choice will be reflected in the world around us because if we have idols on a shelf, either trying to share space with Jesus or stealing the place that only Jesus should have, one of the effects of that is that our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth will not hear the gospel as God wants them to hear the gospel. And we will not support missions. And I don't just mean money, but we won't support missions as we ought to. But if the shelf is wiped clean, if Baal is pulled down and an altar to God is there, if we serve the God of the Bible, if our heart is wholly given to the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's great commission will be both our treasure and also our pleasure. Let's pray. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.